Our scripture reading is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. I think more than once in the last couple of years that I've been with you, I've, I've used an expression that fits right here, and it's this. If you are a Christian, something supernatural has happened to you. Something supernatural has happened to you, and the fact is, it boils down to the fact that if you're a Christian, the life of God has been planted in you. And you would suspect, and the world has reason to suppose, that if that's the case, then there would be certain results of that. There would be certain impact or fruit that might show up if that's the case. You see, the new birth, uh, John writes here, he's talking about, he's talking to those who were born of God. And then he goes on to describe that very thing. That if, that if you are born of God, if that has occurred in your life, then you could expect to find several exhibits of that. In fact, he mentions three, and, and for, for four chapters, John has been mentioning three. And we're going to see in this passage how he brings those three together. You kind of get the idea that um, John supposes that we're slow learners. He might be right. <laughs> I'll speak for myself on that. Uh, it may be that he's choosing to circle back and to remind us of three things, but there's something unusual going on in these first five verses. That he mentions things that he's mentioned before, but he does so in such a way that they are no longer three separate features. In fact, they're, they're interwoven in such a way, John wants us to see, that you can't pull them apart. In fact, where you find one, you will inevitably find the others. That's what John wants us to see from, from this short paragraph, which as you heard it, if you've been here through this series, you heard some things that were, re that were repeating, some things that were not new information. But what is new are two things. One is how interwoven these are. And then today with this verse, he zeroes in on one that he's touched on, but not very much till this point. That's what we're going to look at with the time we have today. You're going to see, we're going to see how mutually reinforcing belief, love, and obedience 
are. Those are the three. Belief and love, and just a little review here. In chapter 2, he listed those. I don't expect you to remember that, but you can go back and look at chapter 2 and see it. Uh, Obedience, he starts with. Then he talks about love, and then he talks about belief. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, he talks about obedience and love. In chapter 4, he talks about belief and love. And in the passage that we looked at last week, he talks about belief and love. So here we meet him again. And if you'll turn and look, look at the passage again. Just want, I mean, you'll, you're going to see these words. I'm just going to point them out and show you how he does that, and then we'll unpack it, okay? Uh, look at those five verses printed right there for you or maybe in your Bible. What you're going to see is in verses 1, 4, and 5, you're going to see believe or faith. Believe is the word that he used most often. In fact, he's not used the word faith in this whole book yet, but he does here in this little paragraph. So belief and faith in verses 1, 4, and 5. You're going to find the word love in verses 1, 2, and 3, three times. And then he's going to talk about the need to obey or carry out the commands of God in verses 2 and 3. It's jammed in there. He's he's jammed a lot in five verses, but three words recur. It's the threefold thesis. He didn't... He didn't pick those out at random, and neither did I select this sermon title at random. (laughs) Believers, lovers, and world overcomers. It's not three groups of people. It might sound like it. It might sound like here we are, the believers. Lovers, we know what lovers are, what lovers do. They love. Believers, lovers, and world overcomers. No, those are three facets and three features of your life in Christ. Those are three aspects of the life of someone who is born of God is the language John uses. What I don't suppose as I stand here is that that those that fill this room today are all born of God. It might be that every person in this room is born of God, but I don't assume that. And John certainly doesn't assume it, and that's the reason I don't. And as we come to a text like this, he's writing to believers, but he wants those of us who who might be within ears range to listen in to what God does when the life of God is planted in someone's life. And the reason that I wanted to state it that way this morning is It would be right and accurate to say that what what John is doing here is that he's providing, once again, three tests. There's there's a test of sort. There's a way to to examine the fruit and and to conclude some things from it. And rather than that frighten you, that should be a delightful invitation to recognize what God is up to in your life. That's what we do for these verses together. First, believers. Believers, that you know what that is. Believers, uh, to believe something is, 
in, biblically speaking, is to, is to have your life formed in a particular activity. Faith and belief is not something new. In fact, we knew that when we, when we came in the room today. We knew that faith and belief is, that's what Christians do. We believe something. But it's not just Christians that believe, is it? I mean, we're, we're made in the image of God, and that means that we're always believing something. We believe that the sun will come up tomorrow, or if you want to be more precise, that once again the earth will rotate around the sun another 24 hours. We believe certain things. In fact, we would be shocked if that didn't occur. We believe that. But when the Bible talks about believing, it's not merely talking about an activity that is that common, that that is common to all of us. It's talking about an activity that is unique to followers of Christ. Belief, you see, or faith is belief that's centered on specific content. There is some object of my faith. There's something I believe in. A little bit later, we're going to profess some of what we believe from Philippians 2. But there is a, there's a content to it. There's an object to it. There is something I believe. And we read from Hebrews 11, it's not just New Testament believers who believed, but Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and a host of others believed God. They counted on God. They, they trusted in him. They, they put their stock in his promise. And they anticipated. Their anticipation was like our anticipation as we step into Advent. They staked their lives on it and they acted in light of that. But there, it was belief in a specific content. And yet, and yet, when we come to the pages of the New Testament and we come to this page, we see once again that the object of our faith, the content of it is expressed very explicitly. And you heard it as we read it. You may have just ran right over it because it is so familiar to us. John says, everyone who believes, believes that Jesus is the Christ. This little carpenter's son who grew up to be a carpenter is the Messiah. That's what John's pointing us to. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, he is, he is the one who was appointed to deliver. He was the one who would be the answer to the promise that God made to remember that promise, to send a redeemer, to rescue, to restore, to rule over all. Sounds like Advent, doesn't it? Well, we're right at home in 1 John 5. Here's a picture of this Advent hope that comes, that we come face to face with, that God has remembered his promise that Jesus is the Christ. And then, as I said earlier, he turns the verb into a noun and talks about our faith. And that's what he wants us to to come front and center with today as we think about this faith. It's a faith, though, that has 
ripple effects. Think of it like that. When you throw a rock into a pond, it doesn't just sink. There are ripple effects. And the ripple effects that John is pointing us to is that faith does something in you and it creates and produces and turns you from a believer to a believer and a lover. John's holding that in front. To believe, to be born of God is to have a faith that has ripple effects in your life and the ripple is to love. And to nobody's surprise, it starts with, John starts where it all starts. It starts with turning you from an enemy of God into a friend of God and one who knows that God loves you and the reciprocal response is, guess what? Love. So by faith, we are believers, but that belief has a ripple effect and it turns, and it turns you into someone who loves God. Now, I'll do a timeout here just to, to note that <clears throat> I'll speak for myself, but my love for God is pretty sporadic. In fact, sometimes, even though this is what I do for a living, the fact is sometimes I bump into him. I mean, that's the, that's the honest truth. That, that God is there, but, but my heart is not so fixed on him that I love only God and nothing else. And as soon as something else comes along, guess what? I start to love something else or someone else or, or myself most of the time. <laughs> That's just a reality. But what is true is that there was a shift in my life and there's been a shift in your lives where you've gone from someone who had no idea or concern about God to someone who from time to time loves God. You know, Luther was asked about it. He said, love God. Sometimes I hate him. He was being honest about the trajectory of his own life. But you know what? Like Luther and like you, like me, like those who've been, who, in whose life the life of God has been planted, you find yourself drawn to him and infatuated and, and compelled in a Godward direction. It's not consistent. It's not permanent. It's, it's not without twists and turns. But, but there's something at work in you that John is pointing to and says, if the life of God is implanted to you, you love God. And it doesn't stop there either. One of the ripple, the next ripple effect is loving those who also belong to God. Did you hear that? <clears throat> he says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, some of us would like to separate those two things out and say, well, those are two total, love God, love God, love your neighbor. But John brings those together and says, if you love God, you will love your neighbor. You will love those who, those who belong to him. It explains why some of you are attracted to one another in ways that are surprising. I mean, you're different from one another. And you find something in someone who's different from you 
But because of Christ and their work in his or her life, there's, there's, a, there's a compelling relationship there. We love not evenly. We love some others. We click with some quicker than others. But there is a love across the aisle, so to speak. There's a, cl- a love across the ocean. There's a love across ethnic groups. There's a love across denominations. There is something that marks your life if the life of God is implanted in you. That you love everyone and those, whoever has been born of him. That's what John is saying there. We are lovers. We're believers and we're lovers. And then he does something really surprising. I mean, it surprises me. As I read this passage, he says, here's how you know. Here's how you know if you love God and you love those who are his, who others who are born. I've got a little list in my own head. I've got a little checklist that says this is what it looks like if I love God and this is what I look like if and when I love you. But John's answer is a little different. And it's not from left field like it first may sound. He says, by this we know, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, if you think about it for a minute, to love God is to love his commandments. That's not a hard case to make. We'll get to that in a second. But to love God and to keep his commandments, how is that loving others? Well, if you, if you think about it, if you, if you read through everything that God has said about <clears throat> how life works, where the, mind, where, the, where the minefields are, where the ditches are to stay out of, a lot of it is about our relationships with one another. A lot of what God says is about how we relate to one another, how we love one another. In fact, he says that's how love of God is expressed by keeping his commandments and paying attention to them. He, John said it in, in, in very clear words in his gospel. In chapter 14, you can look at this later, chapter 14, verses 15 and 21, I'm combining. If you love me, you'll recognize this, some of you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What a great, great picture, but it's surprising in a way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you've ever loved someone, if you've ever loved someone, you want to know what they want. That's what John is driving at. You want to know what that person delights in, and you want to provide it. Love does that. That's what John is simply saying. But one of the things, one of the places where this passage turns is this notion and it's almost sort of smuggled in almost it just it feels like you could this verse could be not there and you wouldn't miss it you want to hear it again it's at the end of verse three for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome that should jump off the page as it did to me as I read it, and it sent me scurrying, and it sent me to Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said, who wrote, 
If your attitude toward the commandments of God is that they are burdensome, you're not keeping them. And neither are you loving God and you're not loving your brothers. You are outside the life altogether. What he's saying there is if the commands of God are burdensome to you, they will keep you. That burden is like the Berlin Wall that no longer exists. It's like, it's like a canyon that you can't leap across. If the, burden, if, the, if the commands of God are burdensome to you, it will keep you from loving God. Right? I mean, some of you have stories to tell like that. Your sense, of, your sense was that God, God just demands things. Who would love a God like that? I surely won't. A God who demands things. Well, for a moment, we're forgetting who's who in the story, aren't we? Uh, as God, God can demand anything. That's another story. But, but the fact is, if, if the commands are burdensome to you, Jones writes, you're not going to keep them. You're not loving if the burdens are commands because of this. For someone who is truly Christian does not find the commandments of God to go against the grain. You know what that means? If you find the commandments of God burdensome, that would be going against the grain of what God's life planted in you would invite you to suppose. Because when the life of God is implanted in you, something happens, as I've said more than once now. Something happens. And one of the things that happens is that you have a new disposition. You have a new want to. <laughs> your, your desires are realigned. We've, we've talked about this before. Augustine talks about our disordered loves. We're loving the wrong things. And when the life of God is implanted in us and things begin to take shape once again in a, in a right direction, in a Godward direction, you have a new want to. You want to want the will of God. <laughs> you want to know what's pleasing to him. You want to know what's wrong and right. That's, that's the work of God in you. And the result is, while we may be acutely aware of our failures, and we are, have our heads in the sand if we're not, <laughs> we may be acutely aware of our failures if we're facing them truly, we have to be aware of our failures there. But here's the difference. The one whose life in which the life of God has been planted does not resent those commands. In fact, she loves them. She wants to want the will of the Father. This is how Jones puts it. That person knows that they're right. And wants to keep them and to love them. He does not feel there are a heavy load imposed upon him. He says rather, this is right. This is how I would like to live. I want to be like Christ. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous, to, to use another translation. So here's what we're asked to think about. And you could call this a practical test. Are you ready? Ask yourself. Is my Christian life a task? Is it a task? Is it a chore? 
Is it something that at some level I resent and object to? Do I spend time trying to get out of it or around it? Am I just living on the edge of the Christian life? Or have I determined to center my life in God's purposes and plans? That's what John is pushing in front of us. To love God is to keep his commands or to have the inclination to do so. That's, that's the key. Because there's not a person in here, and Luther would be the first to say, that we fail. Love God, sometimes I hate him. But I keep coming back. And I keep coming back because this is what I know to be true and I want to be true in my life. And, and John doesn't leave it there because there's another ripple effect it's not just that belief turns you and us into lovers of God and lovers of one another who want to obey, who have an inclination that we didn't have before. But John goes further than I would suppose he might. He says, you're not just believers. You're not just lovers. You're overcomers. Overcomers. I don't use that word very often. And when I do or when I hear it used, it usually has to do with overcoming hard circumstances, right? I'm not going to let this get me down, we say. I'm going to, this is tough, but I'm going to push through it. I've been unemployed for how long? I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to let it bury me. Tough circumstances. But what John would say if he were here is, friends, there's nothing unique about the believer overcoming tough circumstances. People do it all the time. People do that. They suck it up. They turn a leaf. They move. <laughs> they divorce. People deal with tough circumstances in a lot of superficial ways. But what Paul, John is getting at here is helping us to see that it's not just overcoming difficult circumstances. It's much, much more. It's much bigger than that. And what he says in this passage is he says, you, are, you overcome the world. The world. You know, everything, the Bible, when the Bible uses the word world many times, it's, it's suggesting everything that is opposed to God. That's the world. Everything that the world throws at the believer. And it comes in the form of attraction. We might be attracted to other things, other lifestyles, other values. We might be attracted. We might be tempted. The world throws temptation at us and the world knows exactly, the, the prince of this world knows precisely what temptation works best on you. He's an expert. But it's not just 
temptation. It can be slander. It can be persecution. There's an outset, a, a mindset or an outlook that the world offers that would like you to buy. But it's not just the world out there because the world comes at us from a different direction as well. You see, you can move. You can divorce. But the problem is you take your heart with you. (laughs) Your heart goes with you. There's a world, you see, at work inside of me as well. Pride, ambition, selfishness, laziness. That's another front of this two-front war that we're called into. There's a, there's, a, there's a world front outside of us, and there's a world front inside of us. And that's why the, a monastic way of dealing with this just doesn't work. You can't withdraw enough. To conquer the world, to overcome the world. There's no biblical warrant for that either, by the way. You know, we build walls around our children to protect them, but there's a heart that we're dealing with as well, right? The world comes at us, comes at us, that we're to fight on on two fronts. And the monastics didn't quite get it accurate. The moralists have not gotten it accurate, although we buy that chapter, willpower and self-effort. We will overcome the world, right? But there's also a gospel view. There's a gospel way of understanding that, and that is where we take into account what has happened to us in Christ. Those who belong to Christ, where the life of God is implanted, what has happened to them? There's this rebirth, there's this New creation, there's all things new, but there's also what's true of them as a result is a new disposition, a new outlook, a new freedom, a new power, a new relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's new. And that's world beating. That's world overcoming. Because those things are real. A new inclination, a new disposition. Just quickly here, how does faith then work? How does Faith overcome. And I'll say two things here. One is passively. There is a resting in Christ. That's where it starts. Passively resting in Christ. Proverbs 18, we read this. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. That's how we overcome the world. That's how faith overcomes. It's resting in Christ. It starts there. But then there's an active part to it as well. Passive, resting, active, working out the implications. God calls you to that enterprise. Resting in Christ. The finished work of Christ on, on your behalf. And then there's the working out of the implications of it. It's taking stock, it's taking aim, it's, it's having purpose, it's being intentional about this life of faith. And that's what John is eager for us to see, that we're overcomers, passively resting on Christ, actively working out the implications. And I'll close with this. It's recognizing that in a room of this 
sword and this size and this invitation that John gives us to test that for some of you, that testing will raise questions. It's, it's, a, it's a question that, that, that John continues to pull in front of us and keeps on urging our examination. Remember how this works. The way to test for each or any part is not so much to concentrate on that particular thing itself, but rather to look for the manifestation of the others. If, there is, if your life is marked by an alignment and adherence to the message of Christ, guess where that came from? That didn't come from you. <laughs> that was not your idea. You were persuaded of that. You were convinced of it at some level, to some degree, that has you here today. There's evidence of God at work. Love for God, love for others, guess where that came from. You didn't work that up. Test yourself, but recognize how this works. And when, if you see one, that's evidence of the others. That, that the seed is planted. That God is at work. And you should be a people of hope. There's hope. There's hope that, what, that, that when Christ entered this world, he didn't leave it as it, he found it. And when he entered your life, he doesn't leave it as he entered that he is at work creating these, this collage, this masterpiece, this work of art that is your life. Faith, believing. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anticipation. And that turns into love of God and love of others and a faith that overcomes the world. So test yourself. Rest on the finished work of your Savior. Richard Lovelace wrote, <clears throat> we're not saved by the love we exercise, but by the love we trust. There might be evidence of love in your life, and we're grateful to God for that. But that does not save you. Don't Rest and trust in the love that you have been able to manifest. That was a gift anyway. You can't, you can't take that to God and say, look how I've loved. Because our love is sometimes selfish. <laughs> it's often inconsistent. It's always a gift. And it's a gift in the works. And we're learning more and more how to love God, how to love one another. But as Loveless wrote, we're not saved by any love that we exercise, but by the love that we trust. The love of Christ for sinners. If you find that your faith is weak, your love is sporadic, and your command keeping inconsistent, welcome. You're in the right place. But the remedy is not law. The remedy is worship. 
It's beholding the beauty of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the, when the beauty of God is lavish and vivid in front of me, do you know what that does? Do you know what that does to you when, when the beauty of Christ is vividly on display? Nothing else compares. Nothing else is as lovely. And when we look at that and we look at this, it's, it becomes a lot easier to, to let that one go and to fix our lives on that which is lovely, which is beautiful, which is lasting. It's an invitation to worship. The question is, what are you obsessed with? That's what worship is about. Last week was the 30th anniversary for Christ Community Church right up Hillsborough Road. And I missed this part of that celebration. I got there for the second half of the reception. But uh, earlier that morning, Steve Brown uh, was preaching and he said this. Don't obsess with sinning less and being better. Don't obsess with sinning less and being better. Obsess instead with Jesus. Because he makes us better. The question is, what am I focused on? Is it him? John says, yeah, that's, that's right. Rest on your Savior. And then work out your union with Christ. You know, this, this new birth, this born of God, there's a, that's what makes a follower of Christ, one who belongs to Christ, is this rebirth. Well, with that rebirth is a union with Christ. And you're united to him. And what's true about him is true of you. And that means his righteousness is your righteousness. But it also means his overcoming is the overcoming that is working in you. Jesus, who looked at his disciples and said, in the world you will have tribulation. The world will throw everything at you. But take heart. I've overcome the world. And I am in you. And you are in me. Believers, lovers, world overcomers. His commands are not burdensome. They're a path to walk. And by faith and with love, And with a faith that overcomes, that path is walkable. It's an invitation. And if you've come into this room today without any hope, there is hope. And it's in Christ and nowhere else. Pray with me. Father, you've made us in such a way that our hearts have a capacity to hope and to long and to dream. As those who hope, long, and dream, we find that this promise of a Messiah who has come into the world and not left it as he found it and has has offers to come into our lives and not leave us as he finds us. That is a good promise. And for some, maybe a promise too good to be true. But as we step in faith and 
step into that promise, we find life and joy and forgiveness and newness of life, a new orientation, a new outlook, a new joy, and a hope that longs for the end of this story where one day we will be a part of a world that has been overcome, that has been made new. And we have a taste of that at the table that we come to now. In Christ's name we pray. In his name we come. Amen.